0: Alright, good morning. It's Bold and Uncut. Last time we uh, we wrapped up Genesis um, and learned the Bible, uh, episode 3 of the Connect series. Um, and we ended with uh, Genesis 49, uh, verses 9 through 10. It says, Judah is a lion's whelp." This is from the King James Version. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion... Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. You know, to Judah's line, we know throughout scripture belongs kingship. We see King David, Solomon, their dynasty for 640 years after this. Um, You know, but David's throne didn't exist whenever Jesus came. You know, the, the Romans were over. Jerusalem, Uh, but uh, but Jesus will sit on his on the throne of David at the second coming, and he will reign during that thousand year period here on earth, and then forevermore. We see verse ten: the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is a cryptogram of the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter refers to the tribal identity and the right to apply and enforce uh, Mosaic laws, you know, like, mainly for capital punishment. So we see capital punishment here, and we'll see it later in Leviticus as well. But when we go back to history, after the death of Herod in 4 BC, Archelius had been placed over Judea by Caesar Augustus, and then he was removed between, like, 6 and 7 AD. Caponius replaced him. Here we see the legal power of the Sanhedrin was immediately restricted, and the capital cases were lost. And you know that includes capital punishment, and that's why the Jews had to go through the Romans for Jesus to be persecuted. They would lost that power when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves without power over life and death. You know, and other capital offenses, they covered their body with sackcloth and cried in the streets. They thought that the Torah had failed because of that. The scepter had you know won't won't pass until uh, Shiloh come. They thought the the Torah had failed. They thought the word of God was wrong. The scepter was removed from Judah. But little did they know that Shiloh had come because when that happened, uh, when, when the, whenever they took uh, the Romans took capital punishment away from the Jews, when the scepter was removed, a young son of a carpenter was growing up in Nazareth. And we know who that, who that is. Jesus would present himself as Messiah the King as described in Daniel 9. Jacob predicted that the scepter would not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. And that is exactly what happened. Um, and that's just the coolest little prophecy. That was when he was talking to the 12 tribes uh, or the 12 uh, you know, sons who would, who would be the 12 tribes. Uh, but now we're going to get into Exodus. I'm going to try to make this as quick as possible. You know, uh, you know that We're going to start going into wrapping up the Torah, the five books of Moses. Exodus is the birth of a nation. Leviticus is the law of the nation. Numbers is the wilderness. Wanderings and Deuteronomy are uh, that's the last three sermons of Moses. So you know when we when we look through Scripture we see three promises. Uh, we we talked about God's covenant with Abraham last lesson remember, um, and then here we see God's covenant with the nation Israel. Basically, it's uh, you know if they're faithful if they faithfully serve Him you know they're they're going to prosper, but if they turn away then they'd be you know taken out of the land destroyed whatever, and we see this happening throughout their history back and forth with God, and this is known as the Mosaic covenant and it's conditional. It uh, determines their faithfulness, and then later we see the covenant with David. You know the Davidic covenant, and his lineage would produce the Messiah, and he'll sit on David's throne. But we'll get to that when we when we get there. Um, Exodus in Hebrew means the outgoing. You know we we see them. They entered Egypt as a family, and then they left Egypt as a nation. The first eighteen chapters. You know we see there the you know Moses' story. We see the plagues, the institution of the Passover. Then you have the exodus from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, and we've all heard that story a thousand times if you've been to Sunday school any amount of of your life. Um, Chapters 19 through 24 describe the giving of the law at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and the Mosaic Covenant. Chapters 25 through 40 deal with the tabernacle and also highlight the priesthood. We see uh, scripture tells us that a pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph. Um, You know, in Isaiah 52, verse 4 says, um, tells us that, you know, the Pharaoh of the oppression was an Assyrian. So the Pharaoh wasn't even Egyptian, he was Assyrian. And we see him, he becomes insecure and threatened as the Hebrews started to multiply and they become more powerful. You know, they were starting to grow in numbers. So he makes them slaves and they're going to be slaves for 400 years. Moses was an Israelite and his parents were Levite. Um, You know, and later we'll see that that's the tribe of the priesthood. We know Pharaoh orders all male infants to be killed, so his mom sits him in a basket in the river and hopes to save him. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. She hires an Israelite woman to nurse him, and we know that ends up who, who uh, being his, uh, Moses' own mother who nurses him. He later realizes uh, how bad the Egyptians treat his people, the Israelites. He kills an Egyptian, remember? And then he runs away to Midian, which is east of Egypt, and there he meets his wife, uh, Zipporah, if I'm saying that right, and then they have two sons, Gershom and Elazer. Eliezer, maybe. I don't know. Something like that. Has two sons. While Moses was shepherding in Midian, he notices a burning bush that was not being consumed by the fire. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, we read, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place that in which you are standing is holy ground. Verses 7-10, through 10, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. So we see that they're crying out because of their taskmasters, the Egyptians. Right? I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Havites, Hevites—I don't know—and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression uh, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The burning bush, right here, we see Moses—you uh, know—getting his mission from God. And God speaks from that burning bush. God tells Moses his identity. He says, "I am that I am," and then we. We know that that was Jesus Christ who was speaking to Moses because he declares this in John chapter 8, verse 58. God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. And, you know, I feel like I can relate to Moses a lot. You know, he's kind of a bad speaker, he says, um, whatever that means, maybe shy or doesn't have a, you know, he something with his speech, I don't know. Um, and he also has anger issues because he murdered somebody, so, you know i can kind of relate to him not not the the murder thing but just the, the anger thing maybe i don't know but that's why he wants to god about how he's not a good speaker and then we say we see god tells him to take aaron with him which is Moses' brother so aaron's the 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 help uh, chapter 5 to 12 is moses and pharaoh going back and forth we see moses using different signs to show that god sent him and then you know these are some wild stories we see you know pharaoh brings his magicians and we see moses throwing his walking stick down and it turns into a snake and we see some other stuff but we also see pharaoh's magicians uh you know turn their um sticks to snakes so you know there's another world out there that's uh on the on the dark side that you know they do have powers as well but we do see moses uh snake eat their snake but you know and he also shows the people the 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 Jews as a sign from God, too, these signs. But we see the ten plagues after this, you know, because Pharaoh won't listen. Each one of these is a stab at the gods of the Egyptians. And I actually post uh, on my Instagram, you know, going through those ten. Uh, and we know the last one is, the, you know, the, the death of the firstborn. And in those days, the Pharaohs were considered gods. And so Pharaoh's son would probably be the, the next god coming up. The only way to save them was to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. And this is known as the Passover, which is you know, huge for Jews and us as well. The Jews still celebrate this event to this day. The month will be the beginnings of months. And that is why the Jews um, that's why the Jews have two calendars, right? The civil calendar, which is Rosh Hashan. It starts in the fall. Um, and then the, the religious calendar starts in the month of Nisan, the spring, the month of the Passover. And the Passover symbolizes life. They were delivered from bondage. The Passover celebration uh, is in the month of Nisan. Also, in this month, you have the Feast of Passover, uh, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have the Feast of First Fruits, and this is all usually kind of spoken of as Passover. But, you know, they're, they're all very important and point to Jesus, as we've said in uh, other lessons, uh, the Leviticus lesson that we just did, talking about the feasts. Uh, if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to that. Um, but the Passover is also prophetic. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, right? The lamb of God. Egypt is always a symbol of a type of the world, secular. A model or metaphor, you know, of a sinful world. And we see that throughout scripture. They had many false idols and gods. They were very materialistic and immoral. And, you know, I'm reading a book by Patrick Heron. And also a book, uh, Oh, Patrick Heron's book is uh, The Nephilim and the uh, the Pyramids of the Apocalypse. And it's, it's very interesting. I don't know if I agree with him on everything. And I'm also um, reading... Um, I just bought a book by Ryan Peterson. If you've not heard of him, go look him up. Just some interviews and stuff. Very interesting and smart guy. And uh, his book, he's got The Judgment of the Nephilim and The Final Nephilim. And I just started The Final Nephilim, and we're going to hopefully do some series on that. But the Nephilim, we know back in Genesis 6, the fallen angels. Um, you know, and we see them throughout the Bible, different stuff. But he, he suggests that these these very gods that the Greeks and the Egyptians and other immoral nations worshipped were these Nephilim. You know, we know that they were bigger, so obviously the people probably looked up to them. Uh, you know, we see these pyramids in Egypt, these magnificent pyramids. No one even understands how they're built. We see descending shafts in the Great Pyramid of Giza align exactly with four distinct stars at certain times. The Great Pyramid stands at the exact center of the world. It contains enough stone to, to build a six-foot wall from New York to Los Angeles. You know, it's, it's amazing structurally and mathematically. Um, and even the way the stones are cut is like perfect. Um, you know, in the, some of the ancient Egyptian texts state that the monuments were built by the gods to resemble buildings in the sky. Uh, you know, there, I saw, uh, someone who had, uh, posted a picture where they were visiting, I guess, Cairo and from their hotel room, they could see, they could see two of the pyramids, you know, from their hotel room, which is pretty awesome. And so they post that, you know, and someone comments and, uh, they said, wow, they've got two Bass Pro Shops pretty good right I, I thought it was hilarious because you know in memphis tennessee we've got the, the pyramid the great pyramid of memphis tennessee and it's a bass pro shops so i thought that was hilarious but but anyway but we see a lot of the ancient statues in egypt have to do with the stars and the zodiacs you know like back when we were talking about the tower of babel babel whatever um you know and, and then throughout egypt you see the sphinx statue which is virgo to leo It's what that's what and that's, you know, from the zodiac. And we see, you know, worshiping of stars. And if, you know, throughout scripture, we see that how somehow the the stars and the fallen angels, the stars and angels, you, you see the stars always. And even Lucifer is called the morning star. And we see throughout pyramid text, uh, the morning star, star written, you know, so there's numerous verses in the Bible that associate stars and angels. And uh, we see a lot of uh, you know, throughout Egyptian text, uh, how they were talking about stars and worship stars and all that. But we also wonder how these statues were even moved throughout Egypt. You know, they weighed thousands of pounds. Uh, but, you know, throughout the Bible, we see talks of giants, and we'll get into that later. Samuel talks about giant with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Deuteronomy, the king Og, has a, has a bed that's like 18 and a half foot long see goliath of course and then we'll later the next lesson uh well whenever we get in the numbers i guess uh joshua and caleb you know they go to spy out canaan and it's filled with giants um you know so I, i definitely think it's got some resemblance here and even throughout greek mythology you see all these different um things with fallen or you know you know gods and and humans mixing to create these beings but um But anyway, go look into it for yourself and decide what you think. But check out those books for sure and just hear what they have to say. But Pharaoh lets the Israelites go, we know, right? We see over and over again in the book, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I know that's like a debated thing, but it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh changes his mind. He goes after them. Exodus 13, God gives the Israelites a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that guides the Israelites, right? It's like a GPS of the day. Um, We see in Exodus 13, Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him. So I think that's neat. I don't know if they were dug up or or how that worked, but he takes them with him. Because we see Joseph uh, mention that, that he wants whenever, he wants it to stay with his people. But the Israelites cross the Red Sea. We know this story, right? When Pharaoh goes to cross the Red Sea, then we see that the waters close and kill the whole army in the water. You know, and there's a lot of speculation on that too. There's maybe a certain area in the Red Sea that's only like three foot uh, deep. And that they crossed there. And I would say that's even more of a miracle that God drowned the whole army of uh, Egypt from three foot of water. So, you know, either way you want to look at it. Uh, Then we see the journey to Mount Sinai. We see the Mosaic covenant that we talked about earlier, chapter 19 through 24. It is conditional, right? God reminds Israel of their obligation to be obedient in Exodus 19, verse 5. The people agree in verse 8. This covenant is centered around God giving his divine law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, you know, the Israelites had to be faithful, they would, they'd be blessed, you know, and then they turn away from God from the covenant, uh, then the covenant was broke until so they repent and turn back. And we see this back and forth, back and forth, all throughout scripture. Here we see a lot of laws and and ceremonial regulations, but then throughout the Bible we see four dispensations of time in the Bible. And, you know, if you listen to me and Michael's uh, episode, we talked about dispensationalism and covenant theology or whatever, you know, however you agree or disagree with that. But we see four dispensations of time throughout The Bible, we see what we talked about last time, the time of Abraham and the patriarchs and also, you know, during Job's time, where anybody, anytime, anywhere could offer a sacrifice to God. But here, this is like the period of the law. We see, you know, totally different now. Under law, no place except for the specific sanctuary, no one except for an appointed priest, no time except for the appointed time and certain sacrifices at certain times and a certain process and order had to take place. Only people from the tribe of the Levites could do it, you know, could be priests. And then in uh, Ephesians is the third one. We talk about a dis- dispensation of grace that was unknown before. Is what the King James version says exactly a dispensation of grace? The church, right? We have a new high priest who is Jesus Christ. Sacrifices change, Spiritual sacrifices. We're all kings and priests. Uh, and then the fourth dispensation will be we see in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, me and Dad talk a little bit about that, um, the millennial uh, temple. Um, you know whether whatever your views are there, but we talk a little bit about. Uh, our views in uh, um, the uh, feasts uh, episode. Uh, But we see a future temple that's a different temple with different sacrifices. And this will be in the New Jerusalem. And I believe during the thousand year millennial where Christ reigns over the world. Uh, Four periods where God is doing something different. But through all these, though salvation is always by grace through faith in every single dispensation. The Ten Commandments we know are in Exodus 20. While Moses has gone up on the mountain, the people make a golden calf. We all know this story, right? It comes back down. Moses breaks the tablets, resembling breaking the covenant with God, and then melts the golden calf. Moses takes the melted calf and puts it in the water and makes the Israelites drink it to renew the covenant with God and his people. We see this in chapters 33 and 34, and that's just kind of a weird, <laughs> you know, melts it and then the people drink it. But, you know, whatever. Moses resembles Christ's first and second coming here. Christ has broken the first coming, right? Moses broke the tablets the first time, and the second time Moses comes down the mountain, he has to cover himself with a veil because his face is shining with the glory of God. We see that in Exodus 34, verse 29. And what, what happens? Christ's second coming. It will be his glorious return. Why was the law given? To provide a standard for righteousness. How do we know right from wrong, right? By looking at God's standard. These expose and identify sin. We see in Romans seven the law was given to expose our sin nature. We couldn't keep it if we tried. You cannot repair your sin nature. Remember Adam and Eve when they tried by covering themselves with the fig leaves, and then it and we see Jesus had to shed blood and cover themselves with animal skins. Jesus fulfilled the law by shedding his blood as a sacrifice for us. Romans eight, now those who have been made those who have made Christ their Lord and Savior Savior, they're gonna continue, you know, to keep try to keep the law, but we can't, you know, perfectly. Jesus said, those who love me will keep my commandments, right? Our challenge is we need to walk in the spirit and not walk in the flesh. We see that in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. The Mosaic law reveals to people their sinfulness. To the Jews, it reveals it to them. Keeping the law didn't save the people in the Old Testament. They couldn't keep it perfectly either, right? Salvation is by faith alone. Galatians three twenty one says, the law cannot give life. I want to read Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Real quick, let me get to it. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 1-4. through 4, For since law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these real realities, it can never by the same uh, sacrifices that are continually offered uh, every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system was a foreshadow of the bearing of sins by Christ, the perfect sacrifice. And you can keep on reading uh, 5 and on down, and it kind of goes through that. But Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. There's 9, 11. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, right, like this tabernacle we're about to start talking about, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's no more temple or tabernacle, right? The, Roman, the Romans destroyed the, the temple in uh, 70 AD, right? Flattened it. Christ came and has the ultimate one-time sacrifice for all. He is our high priest and sacrifice and king. Hebrews 10:14, which we just read, it says, One time offering, once. Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Not like the mass tradition in Catholicism. When the Roman Catholics take communion with the wine and wafers, they believe it is actually the blood of Christ, and you have to do this weekly. And Christ literally sacrifices His blood every time they do the ritual in order to give you, uh, to forgive you for those sins of that week. So no, that's not right. Christ died one time. It says for all sins, for everyone who put their faith in Him. John nineteen thirty says it is finished. Habakkuk two four says the just shall live by faith. We see Paul quote that in three of his epistles, by grace through faith, and that's always been the case. Last part of the book of Exodus, we see the tabernacle. More is said about the tabernacle than any single subject in scripture. God gives Moses a set of instructions for a portable sanctuary. Exodus 33, God spoke to Moses out of a pillar of cloud. This is known as the Shekinah glory, assuring Moses that his presence would be the uh, with the Israelites. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God told him, you can't see my face, right? For no man shall see my face and live. That's verses 11 through 20 of chapter 33. We see the construction of the tabernacle in chapters 35 through 40. We have the preparation, uh, preparation in chapter 35 the building in chapter 36, the completion of the tabernacle in chapter 39, and we have the assembly of the tabernacle in chapter 40. Then we see God dwelling in the tabernacle in the last four verses of Exodus. Every detail of the tabernacle points to Jesus. And I'm going to uh, get in the book. We're still kind of basing all of this off of uh, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours by Chuck Misler. Um, The tabernacle... Was about 75 feet high and 150 feet long, and was surrounded by a white linen fence about seven and a half feet high. Um, there's only one entrance, right on the east side. The first thing you encounter upon entering was the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. So that's where they do all the sacrifices outside of the temple and inside the, the fence, you know. Um, and then the laver was behind that, and this is where the priest would wash, uh, in uh, you know, to prepare for the various duties. Uh, the entire tabernacle rested on silver which we know silver throughout scripture represents blood. So all of the tabernacle rested on the blood. When first entering the tabernacle, so right, you walk in the fence, you see the, the altar of sacrifice behind it's the laver where the priest wash up. Then you walk into the tabernacle. The priest entered a room that was roughly 15 feet by 30 feet called the holy place. So the first room we have the holy face, the holy place. It was separated from the inner sanctum, which you know we know is the holy of holies, um, which was an exact cube, 15 feet square. Here stood a seven-branched lampstand, we know as the menorah. And this is in the Holy Place, not the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place. And that's on the left of you, the menorah. Across from it was the table of shewbread. to the right of you. Uh, Twelve loaves that were changed every Sabbath. In front of the veil of the Holy of Holies was a golden altar, so that's straight ahead. So when you walk in, you got, of the holy place, the first uh, area, you got to the left, you got the menorah, to the right, the shewbread place. And then uh, in front of those, kind of towards the back of the, of the... Of The holy place, you've got the um, golden altar. Then, when you walk past the golden altar into the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is a coffin-like structure that held the Ten Commandments and some other things. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat, and the word means propitiation. It was solid gold with two cherubim over it. God described himself as he dwells between the cherubim. And when this was assembled, God, in the form of the Shekinah glory, entered and hovered over the mercy seat. Altogether, there were seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, and each of these was linked to Jesus Christ. So, when you walk in uh, to the to the uh, holy place, you got the menorah to your left. You got the table of shoebread to your right, and then further back in the middle, you got the golden altar. When you walk around that, you go into the holy of holies, and you have got the mercy seat, mercy seat, and the ark of the covenant, ark of the covenant. Um so john we see the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us so when you walk in i just named those places right when you walk in it says i am the door it's only one way in right jesus is the door um when you see the 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 um the menorah we know jesus is the light of the world when you see the table of shoe bread, jesus says i am the bread of life the golden altar, Jesus' intercession for us. When you go into the holy of holies, you see the uh, the mercy seat, which we said means propitiation, and Jesus is the propi- propitiation for our sins. And then we also see the ark of the covenant, which is Jesus is our sin bearer. Approaching the tabernacle, it had no beauty that would desire, that you know we would desire it. And then when you enter it, it it becomes beautiful, right? Breathtaking. The entire structure was complete with symbolism. Even the outer area, the inner court and the holy place, were symbolic. The outer area represents the body. The inner court represents the soul. And the tabernacle itself rep- represents the spirit. So all of this is pointing to Christ. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll post a picture on the Instagram so you can kind of see. But you can also see pictures all throughout Google. Uh, and kind of how it uh, represents Jesus and points to him through it. But um. But yeah, just uh, go go through Exodus for yourself. It's it's one of the cooler, um, you know, just awesome stories all throughout. Um, and, uh, and just really take it in. And like I said, uh, when starting the series, try to get this whole image of these cute little children stories out of your head and just realize, you know, uh, how big of a deal this was. I mean, Moses was leading a lot of Israelites over. This wasn't like a, a little band of... 40, 50 people. This is a huge, uh, nation that was leaving Egypt and Egypt was a huge power back then. And, um, you know, and I mean, they were massive and, and just, uh, I mean, it would have been intimidating for sure. And just, uh, knowing how, how God led them out. It's, it's really cool. Um, but anyway, I, I appreciate you guys listening. Um, we'll see you next time. Thanks.